Well, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, if you want to turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 8 to 16. Uh, if you can choose your translation uh, on your app, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, and I believe it's going to be on the screen behind me as well. So Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 16, this is a reading of God's Word. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we're continuing our series through the names of God, and um, hopefully this series has been as encouraging for you as it has been for me uh, personally. And again, we're in this series because we believe names matter, right? We believe names are foundational to who a person is, and so when we study the names of God, we're actually studying all the things that make God God. We're, all, we're studying all the things that make God who He is and, and in hopes that this will draw us deeper into relationship with Him. And the name we're looking at today is the name Jehovah Nisi. Okay, let's say that together. Jehovah Nisi. Okay, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. Now, when you put a banner over anything, um, usually you're trying to convey something important about that thing, right? Banners uh, carry symbolic meaning. You know, right now at this very moment uh, at the Staples Center, I refuse to call it Crypto.com Arena, but at the Staples Center, there are 17 Lakers championship banners hanging in the rafters, right? And anyone who ever comes to play for the Lakers, anyone who ever puts on a Laker uniform always says that the moment they look up at those rafters and they see those banners hanging there, they, they instinctively realize that they're now playing for something so much bigger than themselves, right? That they're a part of history, that they're part of a rich legacy of championship teams. When a business puts a banner over their building, usually has the company logo on it, um, usually meant to convey something about the company's values, right? I don't know if you guys have been keeping up with the Winter Olympics, but, you know, one of my favorite things to watch is during the medal ceremonies, when you see the flags of the different countries being raised up behind the athletes, right? They're serving as these banners that remind us that these athletes aren't just representing themselves, they're representing something so much bigger than themselves. They're representing an entire country of people, right? Now, the big question for us uh, today is this. If there were a banner hanging over your life, what would that banner say? When you move through the world, when you find yourself at work or in class, and when people look at the way that you live, 
Who do you represent to those around you? What does that banner say? And I want us to kind of think about this and meditate on this as we walk through this text together, okay? Now, this name, Jehovah Nisi, appears only once in the Bible, and it's right here in Exodus 17, and it appears in the context of a battle, a battle between the Israelites and the Amalekites. And it's interesting because this battle occurs after uh, God has delivered the Israelites from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Okay, it's happening after that. Okay, so if you're the Israelites, you're thinking, wait, I thought we were free. You know, I thought like all the bad, bad stuff was gone. I thought we were done with fighting. Why are there still enemies trying to kill us? Right? Why do we still have to be in these battles? And it's a reminder for all of us that just because God saves you doesn't mean your life is going to get any easier. Okay? Just because God saves you doesn't mean you're not going to have to face the battles of this life. I think that's a big misconception about Christianity that, that if you have a relationship with Jesus that all of a sudden all your enemies go away. That if we put our faith in Jesus, that if we just pray and go to church regularly, that if we do Christian things, that everything will suddenly start to go our way, that our businesses will start to flourish, that our relationships will just magically improve. But that's not what we see in the Bible. Following Jesus does not exempt us from having to face the battles of this life. Marriage isn't any easier just because you follow Jesus. Parenting isn't any easier because you follow Jesus. Dealing with work and school is still hard. Depression still sucks. Rejection and loss still hurt deeply. Okay, so the question isn't whether or not we have to fight. We all have to fight. We're all fighting every day. The question is, how will we fight when these battles come our way? How will we face the enemies that seek to distract and discourage us, that seek to keep us from becoming the people God wants us to be? And maybe you're in the thick of it right now. Maybe every day you feel trampled on and destroyed at work and you get home and you take all that anger out on your family and all of a sudden you're exhausted, you're burnt out, you're disappointed in yourself, you're discouraged, you're unmotivated, you're bitter, you feel like nothing is going the way it should and you just want to throw in the towel. And if this is you, I believe this, this word is for you. I believe you need this word today. I believe you need to be reminded that you worship Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner, okay? Now, I don't think I really need to convince us that the world is a scary place right now. Um, so much division and hostility and violence. I mean, this week, another horrible, horrible tragedy in New York City. I'm sure you guys have seen it in the news. A 35-year-old Korean-American, Christina Lee, stabbed to death in her own home. And, you know, reading that, I'm, my wife is 35. My wife is a Korean-American. My wife used to live in a walk-up in New York City. Okay? And, and so it just feels like these stories get closer and closer to home. Um, you know, you go on Twitter and you see all the vitriol on Twitter. You see the growing hostility between the left and the right. Everyone's just angry right now. Everyone's just fighting some enemy who they perceive to be threatening their way of life. So in that sense, I don't think I need to convince you that the world is terrifying to live in. What I don't think we often realize is that more often than not, the real enemy isn't out there, but is actually in here. What's very interesting is that this passage comes right after a scene where the Israelites are in the desert and they want to stone Moses because they're thirsty and they don't have any water, right? And, and in the end, the Israelites get the water they want, but Moses ends up naming that place Masa 
and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling because the Israelites tested God. In other words, the biggest problem wasn't that they didn't have water. The biggest problem was that they didn't trust God to provide for them. They thought the problem was external when in reality it was internal. We often think that the battle we're facing is the circumstance we're in or the difficult people we have to deal with, or the government policy we don't like. And because we think the problems are external, we look for external solutions, right? We think that the right political leader or the right political party is gonna solve those problems, is gonna fix those battles, right? We think we need to just get a new job, we need to find a new set of friends, and all of a sudden, we won't have to face those battles anymore. And don't get me wrong, these things are very important. We should be fighting for systemic change in our society. Sometimes there are situations where we need to switch jobs and find a new set of friends. We should care about who our leaders are and what policies they put in place. But the Bible shows us over and over and over again that the battle that often gets overlooked is the battle within us. The battle against the lies that the enemy is always trying to plant in our hearts. Look, if, if someone comes up to me after the sermon today and says, Jason, that was the worst sermon I ever heard. It's a horrible sermon. I hated it. My first instinct is going to be to wage war against that person, right? It's going to be to make that person the enemy, right? And I can wage war against that person in a couple of ways, right? I could talk behind that person, uh, talk about that person behind their back, or I could react to that person in that moment in anger, but what I have to realize is that the primary battle isn't with that person. The primary battle is happening in my mind. The primary battle is against the lie that somehow if I bomb the sermon, that God's going to think differently of me. I have to fight to believe that whether or not I bomb this sermon, that God is still proud of me, that he still looks upon me with love. I have to fight not to wish ill on that person who just said those words to me. I talk to a lot of parents these days, and, and Carol and I are included in this, who say, I hate work from home because I can't do it with kids, right? I, like, work from home is impossible because our kids are constantly demanding our attention. They just want to spend time with us. I can't be productive. I can't really do the work that I need to do. And so we make our kids the enemy. Our kids are not the enemy. The battle we have to fight is the battle to believe that we are not defined by our productivity and success. The battle we have to fight is the battle to believe, to, to, to believe that quality time with our kids is not wasted time. And the battle in here is so much harder to fight than the battle out there. One of the marks that you're following Jesus is that you begin to recognize where the real battles are. Christ followers, contrary to popular belief, do not spend all their time fighting the trolls on Twitter. Christ followers spend all their time resisting the urge to react to those trolls in hatred. Christ followers do not spend all their time fighting their coworkers and their friends who've wronged them. Christ followers spend all their time fighting to forgive, fighting to show grace and compassion because they realize the real battle's in here, not out there. When you read Exodus 17, it's such a strange story because Moses basically tells Joshua, okay, I want you to, you, I want you to go down there and fight the Amalekites down there. I'm going to go to the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Moses understands that the real battle isn't down there. It's in here. 
he understands that this battle is not going to be determined by how strong his army is. He understands that the battle is going to be determined by what happens between him and God on top of that hill. And this is exactly what happens. He goes up. Every time he lifts up his rod, the Israelites start winning. The moment he lets his rod down, the Israelites start losing. It's like a fader, right, attached to his arm. And, and, and I think, like, we need to be reminded that so many of us, we spend all of our time and energy fighting on the ground and no energy at all appealing to heaven. You know, I think, I think you know, I'm guilty of this too. You know, we often think that prayer is a last resort. Prayer is an afterthought. You know, it's something we go to when everything else fails. And, and, and I get it, right? Like, it can be annoying when people come up to us when we're going through something and they say, like, I'll pray for you. You know, because it just feels like it doesn't do anything, right? If you're a doer, if you're a go-getter, you want tangible solutions, right? You, you, you need more than just warm thoughts and platitude, and I think it's true. But I think we often forget that all the planning and all the preparation and all the money and all the talent in the world cannot guarantee us victory in the battles we will have to face in this life because at some point, all of us will encounter a battle that just feels too big for us. And when that moment comes, we need heaven to join the battle. We can't do it on our own. Earlier this year, um, or at the end of two, uh, 2021, when a whole bunch of stuff was happening, like it just felt like so many horrible things were happening to staff members, people in our church, like more than normal. It just felt like a lot of things that could go wrong were going wrong. And, and as a staff, we had to fight the urge to try to fix it with practical solutions. And so we did like a tag team 24-day fast where we, where we just felt compelled. You know what? We feel like what we're dealing with right now is not just a physical problem. What we're dealing with right now is something bigger than that. It's a spiritual problem. We need the God of heaven to join the battle. If we really believe what the Apostle Paul says, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, if we really believe that the battle is a spiritual one, then what are we doing only bringing earthly solutions to the table? It's like bringing a kitchen knife to a war, right? You're not going to get very far. You're not going to survive very long. Now, there's an interesting detail here that I think is crucial to the story, okay? Moses' arms, understandably, are getting very tired. you got to understand this guy is in his, probably in his mid-80s, so it's not easy keeping your arms up all day, okay? If you grew up in an immigrant home like myself, I mean, you know how hard it is to keep your arms up for even like five minutes, okay? I had to do it all the time, okay? And Moses has to do this all day long, right? It's not easy, it's not easy having to deal with the same issues with your family day in and day out. It's not easy having to be fighting with your significant other every single day. It's not easy being alone. It's not easy being a parent. We all get tired. We all get weary. We all have a breaking point. Well, in the story, you have Aaron and Hur who go up to the mountain with Moses, and it says, when Moses got tired, they took a stone and they put it under him, and they held up his arms for him, one on each side. And I just think, like, that is such a beautiful picture of community. Such a beautiful picture of community. 
people who carry the load for us when life gets too heavy to bear on our own. You know, when Carol and I look back on our lives, we can honestly say in every season, God has provided us with the most amazing community of brothers and sisters who have held us up when we couldn't hold ourselves up. You know, when, when our marriage was struggling, we have friends in this very room who fought for us when we didn't have the energy or the desire to fight for ourselves. I remember when my mother-in-law was battling cancer and now uh, watching my own mom battle cancer. Anyone in this room who's ever had a family member go through cancer, you know that it's a grind. Hospital visits, all the chemo appointments, dealing with insurance, just CAT scans, PET scans, Everything that you have to deal with when, when, when you have a family member who's sick, there's no way one person can carry that load on their own shoulders. You can't do it. We need each other. You know, I talk to a lot of people in our city who've been actively involved in, in justice initiatives over the years, and they tell me, like, across the board, they just want to quit now. Like this season has just wiped them out because they've been doing this work for years and then 2020 was like this spark where they thought, huh, like maybe people are starting to pay attention, maybe things are changing, but all of a sudden we're at 2022 and they're realizing people are getting tired too. A lot of people were just virtue signaling back then. You know, they're realizing that the needle hasn't really moved institutionally. And so they're telling me they're cynical they're telling me they're exhausted. They're telling me they're burnt out. And you realize that everyone is human. Everyone gets tired. Everyone needs a break. And we need people to pick up the baton when we need a break. And we need to fill the gap for others when they need a break. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says, weep with those who weep. To be the shoulder for someone to cry on, to be the embodiment of God's provision to someone who needs it, to be the Moses, to be the Aaron or the Her to the Moseses in your life, to be a voice for those without a voice, to believe for those who can't believe. This is why the church exists. Um, I told this story a few years ago. Um, it's the story of Jim Serrell, and I was reminded of him this past week because I saw an article um, that talked about uh, how he recently, on Christmas Day of 2021, he actually uh, lost his oldest daughter to an asthma attack. And I was reminded of his story. But for those of you who don't know, uh, Jim Serrell uh, is better known as Timber Jim, and he is the mascot for the soccer team, the Portland Timbers. Okay, and uh, he's been a avid fan since the 70s. He's been a season ticket holder, never missed a game. Uh, one day, he, he said, look, uh, he went to the team. He said, can I bring a chainsaw to the game? I don't know why they said yes, but they said yes. Um, they let him bring a chainsaw, and he started to become a fixture at all the Portland Timbers games. And he became such a fixture that at some point, they were like, you know what? You want to be the mascot? And they made him the mascot of the team. And so every time the team scores a goal, like I think he like cuts down like a tree trunk or something. Um, it, it's pretty crazy. And um, back in 2004, uh, he experienced a terrible tragedy. And he actually, at that point, lost his youngest daughter uh, to a in a tragic car accident. And, and so now he's lost two, two of his daughters. And his youngest daughter at the time also had a daughter of her own. And so basically, in an instant, uh, he had to become his granddaughter's primary caretaker. It's a heartbreaking story. Well, after his daughter's memorial service, uh, Timber Jim comes back to his first Portland Timbers game. 
and the Portland Timbers score their first goal. He does his kind of like obligatory um, cutting down the tree trunk, and he looks out into the crowd, and he realizes that everyone's weeping. Like they're just sobbing. And in that moment, he, he feels compelled to just start singing his daughter's favorite song, which is You Are My Sunshine. And he just starts singing it, and midway through the song, he gets choked up. He gets so overwhelmed with emotion that he can't stop. He can't, he can't finish the song. And then the most beautiful thing happens. All of a sudden, the entire crowd just starts singing the song back to him. And to this day, at the 80th minute of every Portland Timbers game, the entire crowd sings, You Are My Sunshine, in memory of his daughter. And you read that story and you're like, this is what community looks like. A community of people willing to do the work to hold their brother up when that brother is, can't carry this life on their own. And we need each other. We need uh, each other to survive. Activist Grace Lee Boggs used to say, the only way to survive is by taking care of each other. It's the only way. Now let me speak to two groups of people um, two groups of people in this room. I think some of us don't want to admit it, but we need help. But because of shame or pride or reputation or, or because we're just used to being everything for everyone, we can't ask for help. We really struggle to depend on people. We don't like that idea. And, and, and it makes sense, right? Because we live in a culture that elevates independence, that elevates self-sufficiency. So we don't like the idea of asking someone for favors, right? We don't like the idea of asking someone for help because it makes us appear weak. You know, you don't want people to know the real you. You want to see, you want people to see the superhuman side of you, the side you portray on social media. You don't want people to realize that you have limits and that you need them. Well, let me say this. If you do not tether yourself to community, if you do not allow yourself to need others, you will not survive in this life. You will not. Uh, at our most recent leadership cohort, I asked people to name two people outside of their own family members who, who they could honestly say knew them intimately. And I can't tell you how hard it was for so many of us to just name two people in their life who you could call when you needed help. Two people you, want, you knew who knew you deeply. That's a problem. We need people who we're willing to be vulnerable with. We need people who we're willing to allow into the mess of our lives. And anyone who thinks they can face the battles of this life on their own is fooling themselves. So that's number one. Second group of people I want to address are those of us who are so engrossed in our own pursuits, in our own comforts, in our own lives, that we have not once picked our heads up to see that there are people all around us who need our help. We are a privileged congregation overall. I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, but generally speaking, we are a pretty privileged congregation. And every single person in this room has power. We may not have institutional power, we may not have organizational power, but I guarantee you, we can name unique gifts, experiences, stories, and abilities that are unique to us that God has graciously given us to be the embodiment of his love 
to someone around us. You have no idea how much an email, how much a conversation, how much a meal, how far a hug, right? As long as you don't have COVID, how far a hug can go to encouraging another human being. I can, we, uh, we go to city dinners all the time, and we, meet pe we ask people all the time, what made you come to Citizens, or you know, like, you know, what made you come to our church? I can't tell you how many times it wasn't because of the sermons, it wasn't because of the music, it was because someone said hi to them. It was because someone remembered their name. We live in a city of so many lonely people who are so anxious, who are so beaten down in life, all they want is to be seen. We have the ability to do that, but we need to pick ourselves up and see that there are people God has placed in our lives for us to be that embodiment of his love too. I've been thinking about this a lot for us as a church. How can we as a church begin to shift our focus from just building an impressive organization for our own benefit to truly becoming a people who mediate the love of Christ to our neighbors and lift up those who are serving our city because this is what the church is. This is what it means to be a city on a hill. You know, what I love about this story most is that it's such an honest picture of life. You know, at the end of the battle, uh, I don't think Moses is standing on top of the hill with his chest puffed out looking like a conquering warrior. I really don't think that's what he looks like. I think Moses is beaten down. I think his arms are probably shaking from having to hold them up all day. I think his legs are giving out from underneath him. I think he's tired. I think he's hungry. I think he's dehydrated. And I think there's just something so profound and powerful about this feeble old man with his blood-drained hands building this altar after a long day of battle and naming that altar Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. And I imagine what the soldiers on the ground were thinking as they looked to the top of the hill and they see this altar, realizing that they've won the battle not because of their own strength, but because they had someone interceding on their behalf. It's a powerful image. Now, I think oftentimes the problem when we read stories like this is that our, the thought that comes to mind is, what about me? Right? I'm sure many of us are thinking, okay, this is great, but what hope does this give us in 2022 having to fight the battles we have to face every day? Where is our Moses who will intercede and contend on our behalf? And I have good news for us. The Bible tells us that we have an intercessor who is greater than Moses. You can read all about it in Hebrews 3. This intercessor never gets tired, never gets weary, this intercessor also walked up a hill, not with a staff, but carrying a cross. His name is Jesus. And whereas Aaron and Hur held up Moses' arms when he got tired, Jesus' arms were held up by two nails. And over his head hung a banner that said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And just when it looked like all hope was lost, we read that when Jesus breathed his last breath, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was the final blow to the curse of sin and death. And this means that as we face our battles today, we can cling to the hope that we read in Romans 8. It says this, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, 
more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and get this, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the same way that the Israelites were tethered to what was happening on top of that hill with Moses and God, you and I, because of what Jesus has done, are tethered to him. And when we walk around, we carry around his perfect life and his sacrificial death as this big banner over our heads. It's this banner that reminds us that the war is over. You know, uh, when you read through world history, you can write, read so many instances of battles that persisted even after the war ended, right? Because obviously this was before the age of social media, so sometimes it would take days, weeks, or even months, right, for news of peace to reach the army in the field. So soldiers still had to fight. In the same way that you and I still have to fight. We still have to fight every single day. But I guarantee you, the fight will feel different when you understand that the war is over. That ultimately, the victory is the Lord's. And that should instill in us such courage and confidence because it means we have nothing left to fear. You know, my hope and my prayer for our church is not that we wouldn't have to face battles. Right? Battles are a part of life. They're going to come up every single day. They're probably going to come up the moment you leave this space. My hope and prayer for our church is that when we do face our battles, that we would fight in such a way that our lives become huge banners for a watching world, that our lives become huge banners that carry the good news that in the end, evil and injustice and death will not prevail, that the battle ultimately belongs to the Lord. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Let's pray. Gracious God, we um, come humbly before you. Many of us here feeling beaten down, exhausted, burnt out, and I know that for many of us, the moment we leave this room, it just feels like we're walking onto more battlefields with landmines all over the place. Our home, our workplaces, our classrooms, social media, these spaces that, that just feel like they destroy us and they suck the life out of us. But God, I pray that we would internalize this word today, that we would be reminded that when we face the battles of this life, the God of heaven stands beside us and has gone before us. I pray that when we face the battles of this life, 
we can face them knowing that ultimately the war is over and the victory is yours. So I pray that we would still fight. We would fight against injustice with all of our might. We would still fight for change in the places that desperately need it. We would fight uh, to install good leaders and good policies. But in the end, I pray that we would appeal to heaven, remembering that ultimately this battle belongs to you. Give us hearts of courage, give us hearts of confidence, and help us to celebrate with joy, knowing that you've already won. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your goodness that sustains us. We entrust our lives and our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray.